Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we're in chapter 7, and chapter 7 in 2 Samuel is one of the mountain peaks, as it were, of revelation uh, in the Bible, in the entire Bible. It's sort of, in some respects, similar to Romans 8 in uh, the New Testament. And the reason I would say so is because the covenant with David, which this passage deals with, is uh, a covenant that embraces the whole history of redemption. In, in one sense, we can look back from it and uh, we can look forward to ultimately its fulfillment in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is speaking of a king for a kingdom. Hear now the word of the Lord. Today, uh, we will not do all three points. We will only read verses 1 through 17. Uh, the passage is dense, and there's lots of material here that I think is worthy of another sermon. You could preach 20 sermons on this and not exhaust it. But I made that decision in my study, and so that's what we're going to do. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and he will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and mercy, which pursues us every day. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you actually continue to speak to us primarily and most certainly through your word. And so we pray today that the Holy Spirit, who breathed out these words, would breathe on us and illumine our minds, soften our hearts, draw us with the cords of love, and enable us to hear this word, not only to hear it, but to heed it, to obey that which it commands, to revere the God it reveals, and to show us the beauty and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us and bought us to be yours. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have here in this book a rather remarkable passage. And this is the first time since Sinai that God has revealed a message that was this dense and this lengthy regarding his people. So it is, in some respects, a high point in the narrative of 2 Samuel and the entire narrative of the Old Testament. You see, one of the ways that we can understand the Bible that is most helpful is understanding the covenants that structure the history of redemption. God has made covenants with his people throughout the Old Testament, covering the period of time under the new covenant of the New Testament, and ultimately will fulfill all of these covenants at the end of time when Christ returns. But these covenants give us a structure to understanding the great story the Bible tells. People today are preoccupied with meta-narratives. You know what a meta-narrative is? A meta-narrative is a transcendent story, overarching story, by which we all understand our place in the world and our part in that particular story. One of the reasons our culture in the United States of America, and I don't think this is just simply limited and located in our country, but one of the reasons we see such cultural rot and decline is we have departed from that story. And we've constructed our own stories, and our own stories will not carry us. They will not hold the weight of the world. And so as a result of that, we see things falling apart before our eyes. You know that we live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a time in which the meta-narrative of Scripture no longer informs most of our institutions, our families, our culture, our societies, its ethos, its ethics has long since gone. We live in a post-Christian era, no doubt. But one of the ways that the Bible presents itself is to help us understand that overarching story. And so that's what we're going to see in this text, in particular as we focus 
upon the Davidic covenant. The strict structure of the passage is easy. We have the setting giving in the first three verses. We have God's revolution, uh, revelation of his promises to his people that we call the Davidic covenant. And finally, we have a prayer of response from David to God's revelation. But today, we're focusing on the Davidic covenant, a king for a kingdom. As we chart and understand the course of redemptive history, and we do so by means of the covenant, we have arrived here at this point where God makes a covenant with David. Now, do you see the word covenant anywhere in the passage? Do you? No, it's not there. But all the elements that make a covenant of a covenant are found in this passage. And other texts of Scripture spread out through the Old Testament refer to this as the Davidic covenant. So we're looking at a covenant. And a covenant is God establishing, as it were, a relationship with his people based upon his grace to us also requiring certain obligations out of us to live in a relationship with him. And so this covenant, again, is referred to as the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David, and it has much to do with God's royal house and God's royal son. If Abraham in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is held up as a man of faith, and if Moses is sort of a paradigm of a prophet, then surely David is Israel's greatest king. He is the warrior who slays Goliath, the commander who takes Jerusalem, the architect, religious architect, who receives the plans for the building of the temple, and David's name appears in at least half of the headings of the Psalter or the Psalms. He made musical instruments used for temple worship. And he ordered uh, the worship in the temple. The 12 tribes prospered under David's reign. And the faithfulness of kings are measured throughout the book of Kings and Chronicles as how they fared put up against David. Mount Zion bears this title, the city of God, and it is also called the city of David. So David truly is, because of God's choice, a man after God's own heart. But what is the Davidic covenant, you may ask? And I'm glad you asked, because we're going to talk about it for about 30 minutes. Here it is. The Davidic covenant is about royal offspring, that is, son of David, who will build the house of God and rule from his royal throne forever. That is the essence of this covenant. Now, how does this covenant connect with the covenants that have come before it. Well, I'm going to try to do that, tie up that loose end right now. David's covenant connects with and expands upon the covenants that we see earlier in the Old Testament. The first one is called the covenant of works, where Adam must be perfectly obedient to God's command to earn eternal glorified life in an unfallen world with God's throne in the midst of his people. After Adam's failure to keep the terms of the covenant of works, God makes a second covenant called the covenant of grace in which he promises to deliver his people through one of their offspring. In the covenant with Noah, 
we learn that the offspring will be righteous. He will deliver his people from the flood of God's wrath and bring them into an earth completely cleansed from corruption and sin. The covenant with Abraham, who takes up the matter of offspring and land, God promises to give Abraham an offspring who will be a blessing to the nations and will bring all of God's elect people from every tongue, tribe, nation into the promised land. In the Mosaic Covenant, the Lord delivered Abraham's offspring from the offspring of the serpent, Pharaoh, God entered into a covenant with Israel requiring faithfulness to all he had commanded them and perfect obedience. And as they do so, uh, they would enter into the blessings of the promised land. They must do his commands and they must seek his grace as they live in the promised land as a light to the nations. The redemption of Israel out of Egypt was never meant to be just to form a people of God who uh, lived in a castle with the walls around them uh, in a city, walled city that never moved outside. The purpose of Israel in the Old Covenant was always to be a light to the nations because God promised Abraham that his seed would be from the nations, not just from Israel. Uh, they must do his commands. They must follow him. And so the covenant with Israel teaches us about the perfect obedience required of the promised offspring to possess the land of God's blessing. Now listen carefully. The covenant made with David connects to these covenants showing us this, that God will raise up for David an offspring who will rule over Israel forever, forever. This is the same offspring promised to Adam, the seed that would crush the head of the serpent, and later to Abraham, promising him an offspring who is righteous like Noah, who will be a blessing to the nations like Abraham, who will build a house for God to dwell in with his people. In the Davidic covenant, O. Palmer Robertson says the following, God purposes to redeem a people to himself, reach reaches their climactic stage of realization so far as the Old Testament is concerned, under David, the kingdom arrives. We will begin then, as we go further in this message, to look at the context of the Davidic covenant, the elements of the covenant, namely offspring, a royal house, and an eternal throne. First, the context. We remember last week that David had finally brought the ark into Jerusalem. And it arrives there, meaning God's presence is now with his people. He dwelt in a glory cloud above the cherubim on top of the mercy seat. And we witness David's dancing and partying and shouting and joy and glee as the ark was brought into the city. And the Lord sit, sat enthroned above the cherubim and the covenant also referred to the ark as the footstool of our Lord, the place where his holy feet rest. David's throne is established now in Jerusalem. And the Lord graciously permits his throne to be re relocated there as well. The Lord establishes David's rule in Jerusalem, and the Lord rules over and through the king in Jerusalem. In the light of this special treatment, 
The excitement of David is understandable. Out of all the tribes of Israel, God had chosen the tribe of Judah. Of all the cities in the promised land, the Lord had chosen Jerusalem. And the divine rule is administered through David's rule and goes out from David's city. But let's look now at the progression of the promises God has made to his people because I want you to get solidly in mind that all of this has what I call a level one fulfillment. When it happens, these promises of God have a level one fulfillment. They have a level two fulfillment when Christ comes the first time and they will have a level three fulfillment when Christ returns. And so as we understand the nature of the Bible, you're going to be maybe surprised at how all this is going to work out. But it'll make Scripture fit to better, better, have more coherence, more unity in the message as we understand how God has used this period of making covenants with his people to bring about redemption. Not only is the Lord's special presence to be found in Jerusalem, now his peace is surrounding the city that he loves. And David in verse 1 tells us he lived in his house that the Lord had given him rest from all surrounding enemies. The Lord gave David rest. His enemies were subdued. Israel was secure as the people of God, united around a king who ruled over the 12 tribes in the promised land. In the person of David, we get a clearer picture of the Christ. And in the Davidic covenant, we have all the elements of the previous co uh, covenants. Once again, we're dealing with the subject of typology of shadows and substance. As we look at David, is he the king that's going to answer the problem of a king and be for us the king forever? No. David himself, as we will soon see, falls from the throne pretty predictably and pretty quickly. But David points beyond himself to another messianic figure. David was an anointed one, but he wasn't the anointed one. The king of Israel is raised up by the Lord to lift the expectations of the people, causing them to look for the arrival of the messianic king. David is the conqueror who defeats the offspring of the servant. David rescues Abraham's offspring from the hands of their enemies. They dwell in the promised land and enjoy peace and prosperity under a very righteous king who lives according to the righteous commandments of God. Perhaps most significantly, residing in Jerusalem now is the very throne of God. As David is sitting in his palace and enjoying his beautiful home and the cedar in his beautiful home and the peace and stability of his nation, he realizes that something's not quite right. There's an incongruence here. David says this cannot be right. God, he reasons that God, who has so richly blessed him, dwells in a, this is my addition, crummy tent. And David is living in a palace. To say it was cedar-lined was excellence of excellence. He said this can't be right. And so David reasons that God, who has so richly blessed him, uh, needs a house to dwell in. If anything, it is backwards. 
And Nathan knows what David means, and so he gives David sort of the go-ahead, the head nod, that he has to return and tell uh, him that he's going to face a change of plans. Look at verse 5. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God dwelt in a tent, sort of a mobile throne room, because his people were heading to Canaan. And once they entered the promised land, it took time before Canaan was subdued before uh, God. But now the Lord's people had rest. Now that God's throne, the Ark of the Covenant, came to rest in Jerusalem, it made sense to David that now was the time for the temple palace to be constructed. David was about to learn that he will never be able to build anything for God. But God was going to build something for David. The Lord promised David's offspring a royal house and an eternal throne. It was good, as it were, in the heart of David that he desired to do so. But it was not the will of God because God had an entirely different purpose for understanding the nature of his redemption of his people. So now we get to the passage that deals with the offspring. The Davidic covenant shows the advancement of a major theme of the covenant of grace. The Lord said to David in verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. That this covenantal promise is about offspring shouldn't be any surprise to any of us who've read the Old Testament. The Bible's own storyline is built upon this expectation. The Davidic covenant further develops the Abrahamic covenant. Like Abraham, David will have an offspring who will come from his body. And David proposes to build the temple and is denied to do so. So too Abraham proposed that the heir of his estate would be his servant Ishmael, which was likewise rejected. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, that is, Abraham, this one shall not be your heir, but one who comes from your own body shall be your heir. Abraham's offspring will come through David's offspring. Through the bloodline of Abraham and David comes the Messianic king. And so, as we continue to look at this story, David is a type of the final heavenly eschatological fulfillment. David is from the tribe of Judah. He defeated the Jebusites and took possession of Zion. He became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him and the Lord gave him rest from all the surrounding enemies. David's offspring in a first level fulfillment was Solomon who also foreshadows the peace and prosperity that comes through the righteous rule of Jesus. The rule of Solomon is outstanding. We'll see some of that later. Without question, the gracious covenant with David extended through Solomon, 
is an expansion of the covenant of grace promised to Adam after his fall and is carried on through the patriarch Abraham. While God calls David my servant, he calls David's offspring my son. Sonship in relation to God is relatively rare in the Old Testament. Israel is called God's son in Exodus 4. And Adam's sonship is confirmed by the New Testament. David's son will also be God's son, a special, howbeit qualified sense. The prospect of chastening of the Son of God spoils any effort to find the divine kingship concept of the ancient Near East manifested in Israel's understanding of its monarchy. Yet at the same time, the de declaration of 2 Samuel 7.14 that David's son is also God's son provides adequate basis for later developments which point toward a divine Messiah. The moral and spiritual failure of all of Judah's kings met with God's displeasure and discipline. The succession of kings ends up where? In exile. But as the Israelites return to the promised land, this promise would certainly be remembered. Someone from David's own body would come bring with him an even greater kingship and kingdom. When the royal divine son comes from David's own body, he will have a royal task to perform. Let's think about another subject here for a moment, the concept of building God a house. Once the Jebusites had been conquered, the arks brought in, David's thoughts turned toward the temple to house an ark. David's desire was to build the heavenly king an earthly palace. But the tabernacle and temple were earthly copies of God's heavenly palace. Because God's throne was brought to Jerusalem and because God's kingship is so much greater than any earthly monarch, it seemed only natural to begin the building process. But God told David no. David wanted to do something good for the Lord. He wanted to honor God and exalt him above the gods of the nations. I would think that this would be incredibly discouraging to hear a no here. We go throughout life learning some difficult lessons that sometimes God's no, or that every time God's no is always for our good. David wanted to build God a royal house. God in turn declares that he will build a house for David. He will establish a royal dynasty for David. The astounding grace of God in this passage is captured in all of his I statements in verses 8 through 14. Let's read that again, verses 8 through 14. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. You have been prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a palace for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord, I, will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his, of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God's great and gracious promises continue to expand as redemptive history unfolds. God had already planted Israel in the promised land. And yet the Lord speaks of appointing a place for his people. He had already given David rest from all his surrounding enemies. But in this uh, covenant, the Lord promises him rest from all his enemies. David already has offspring, but God promises him an offspring. David's kingdom will be transferred to Solomon, but God promised that his son's throne would be non-transferable. That is clearly God is promising something that transcends Jerusalem and her kings. These are physical, spiritual, and eternal blessings. What God wills transcends what Solomon and the kings after him enjoyed while on earth. Redemptive history begins with God declaring, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And in the final book, the Lord declares to him who overcomes, I will give to him to eat from the tree of life. I will give you the crown of life. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He will do all these things through David's royal son, Jesus. That's what the passage is talking about. In this covenant relationship, God promises to establish David's house, and in turn, David's royal son will build a house for the Lord. Solomon will build the temple. As we saw in chapter 2, the temple that Solomon built was reminiscent of God's sanctuary in the Garden of Eden. Returning to God's house was always the hope of God's people. Though the temple builders of Babel wanted a tower to reach into heavens, God showed Jacob a ladder coming down from heaven. Though Egypt had their impressive temples, the Lord will only be found in the place he's chosen to put his name, which would be committed to Solomon to carry out. But what man could build such a temple? Solomon recognized the impossibility of this task. Behold, heaven and earth cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So there must be something beyond Solomon, something beyond level one historical fulfillment of the time Solomon became king and Solomon had the temple built and the glory cloud presence of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, fills the ark in the temple and it looks like this is it. This is the golden age. We have arrived. Messiah is here. Now forever and ever and ever and ever our kingdom will be established. Well, keep reading. And the bad news, if you keep reading, is Solomon, I don't know if he had, how many wives he had? Anybody know 600, 900 concubines? I don't know. But the man not only entertained other relationships than his wife, but he also worshiped their gods. And as a result of that, we see that Solomon is not the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. He is a level one fulfillment. Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, says this, this one place of worship reinforces the truth 
that there's only one God, not many, and avoids Israel's temptation to serve other gods, for many high places may tempt the unwary. The temple's architectural features contain both cosmological and royal symbols that teach I am's, that is God's, absolute sovereignty over the whole creation and his special headship over Israel. With the construction of the temple complete, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple. The Lord of the Covenant is faithful to fulfill his promises. He's raised up offspring for David. David's offspring built a temple for the King of Majesty. The third element of this covenant relationship has to do with the throne of David. Now you need to listen faster. And your house and your kingdom shall be forever before me. Your throne shall be established. The Lord promised David an eternal throne. Obviously, an eternal throne is something that, properly speaking, belongs to God alone. But at the coronation of David's son, we see the close connection between God's throne, the throne of David, on the top of Mount Zion, the throne of David comes together. The echoes of Eden return once again. If Solomon fails to obey, the people will perish from the land. Keeping the commandments was God's stipulation for the promised land, not only for the royal crown, but also the common people. But it's just like the heart of man to challenge God's rules. Solomon's wives turned his heart to follow after the gods of the nations that the Lord had driven out. This was the beginning of the end Giving all that we looked at, it creates a certain amount of tension. How could this be an everlasting covenant with David if Solomon fails so miserably and right after him the kingdom divides into north and south? The covenant with David, you need to understand, was and is about Jesus Christ. That's what this covenant is about. As we saw in the Abrahamic covenant, there are two levels of fulfillment. God promised to give Abraham an offspring. Abraham's descendants become numerous as the sands of the sea. God swore an oath that he would give his descendants the promised land, and so he did. But there's another deeper level to that promise. Paul looked at the promise of the offspring in Galatians 3, and he said the promise was not referring to many, but to one. And to your offspring, who is whom? Christ, Paul says. It works the same way for the land. God swore to give Israel the land. And when Israel entered Canaan after their 40 years of wilderness wandering, this promise was fulfilled on one level. Not one word has failed of all the good things the Lord your God promised you concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Yet, the writer of Hebrews tells us there's a second and deeper level to Abraham's promise. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking for a city whose designer and builder is God. If Christ is the ultimate reality of the Abrahamic covenant, and if the Davidic covenant is an extension and expansion of the Abrahamic covenant, then we must conclude that the promises to David are about Christ and his kingdom, and that is exactly how the writers of the New Testament understood it. 
Romans chapter 1, 1 through 4, listen carefully. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is David's son according to the flesh, but he's greater than David because he's declared to be the son of God with power. How? By his resurrection from the dead. Dennis Johnson has a very helpful quote here. It's a little long, but I'm going to read it. Try to follow. These intolerable tensions arise from the fact that life and blessing in covenant communion with God is on the one hand absolutely secured by God's promise and yet is on the other certainly contingent on the submissive obedience of God's servant people and their leaders. How indeed can God give God's richest, greatest promise come true for his people? If those blessings are to any degree contingent on the faithful obedience of the human covenant servant, whether Israel, Judah, or the king, as the book of Samuel King shows so clearly, sons of David who resemble their ancestor in whole soul commitment were few and far between. Worse as yet, as 2 Samuel demonstrates too clearly, David himself was far from a perfect prototype of just and holy leadership. The man after God's own heart also abused his power and his position to gratify his desires, cover his guilt, and exploit his subjects. In order for the richest blessing promised by the Lord to come to his people, we needed the arrival of a covenant service servant characterized by purity of devotion to God, unparalleled by anyone in Israel's previous history. The unresolved tensions within the Old Testament cried out for resolution in the coming of the Lord and in the coming of the servant, unstained by the infidelities that had always polluted Israel and her leaders. He, Jesus, is called the Son of God. Unlike David, no iniquity was found in Jesus. And yet the stripes of men were laid upon him. He walked before God with integrity of heart and uprightness of life, doing everything that the Lord commanded him, keeping the Lord's statutes and rules. Nevertheless, Jesus himself experiences the curse of the covenant upon the cross and was cut off from the land of the living. As we would say, this is not how it's supposed to end. I should have been given the throne in Jerusalem, not a cross on Calvary. When does Jesus sit upon David's throne? Some are still waiting for the day, but the writers of the New Testament saw the day and claimed that it had been fulfilled. Listen to the book of Acts quickly. And we bring to you chapter 13, verse 32. We bring to you good news of what God has promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as is also written in the second song. You are my son today, I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you ho the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. 
For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep, that is, died, and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Paul is quoting from the second psalm here. It's the psalm of the ascension of uh, God's Son to the throne. When Christ ascended on high and was seated at God's hand, what did he do? He, he poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church, the temple of the living God. The temple of the living God. Here's the incredible reality of the Davidic covenant. David's son is building a house for God's name, not with wood and precious stones, but with living stones. The church is the temple of God. Now, therefore, Ephesians tells us, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's why God told David, you're not going to build me a temple. I'm going to build you one. And the one I'm going to build you will come generations later through the Lord Jesus Christ from the tribe of Judah. Read his, uh, what is that in uh, Matthew and Luke, genealogy. You will see that's his heritage according to the flesh. He himself comes, accomplishes as God's servant, everything necessary to save us, save us, God exalts him, resurrects him, exalts him to the right hand. He pours out his spirit upon the church, and God's son is building a house. What is the house? People! You know, when people get all excited about the temple in Jerusalem being rebuilt, or now there's a mosque on it, and they're all upset about the mosque. Don't worry about that. That's not what the Bible's about. It's not about going back to Israel and rebuilding the temple and offering sacrifices again and God coming and dwelling on that mount in the temple. No. Who is the temple of God? You are. I am. We are housing God's spirit. So it changes the whole way you look at the Bible. And in the end, Revelation 21 and, and following, when it speaks of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, what is that? It's the people of God from all ages. It's not a building. For heaven's sakes. Read the Bible, for heaven's sakes. It's just not that. Now, let me back off my high horse for a minute to tell you that I used to believe everything I just told you with all my heart. Have you ever looked at yourself and said, you know, honestly, I can't believe that five years ago I believed that. And here I am today as I look back on that, how could I have been so stupid? The thing that scares me is five years from now, I'm going to look at myself and say, how in the world could you stand up in front of people and say that? But I'm pretty sure, as sure as I can be, someone who studied the Bible daily for 45 years, that this is that. That the Davidic covenant is fulfilled in this way. So let's close with a recap. God gave to Adam a covenant of works. We know Adam failed. Jesus underwent the covenant of works. 
he succeeded. In the covenant of grace, God promised that an offspring would come in bruised victory. Jesus fulfills Adam's commission by filling the earth with the glory of God as he creates an ever-growing place for God's name from one end of the earth to the other. Like righteous Noah, Jesus is God's righteous son who spares his children by doing all that God commanded him. Out of every tribe, tongue, and language, Jesus is the one who breathes life into spiritually dead people, making them the offspring of Abraham and bringing them to the promised land. By his active obedience, he fulfills the law's demand. By his passive obedience, he walks the path of blood alone, taking upon himself the penalty for his people's covenant breaking. The king has power to set Abraham's captive offspring free. And even now as we journey toward the new heavens and the new earth, we do so under the protection of our righteous king, Jesus, who ascended into heaven and shows us that he is the head of the church and that the Father rules all through him. When the end comes, we will experience the joy of the new heavens and earth. The throne of God will descend and we will see the king, David's king, seated upon the throne of the Lord in the midst of the garden of God, worship for all eternity by his royal subjects. And that makes me want to shout. That helps us understand how when you pick up this foreign thing called the Old Testament and you start reading it, you begin to see that, whoa, look at how God has fulfilled. You know what it gives me great? It thrills my soul to be able to say, if God has taken that, which they didn't understand, and fulfilled it that way, what's he going to do for us? I has not seen nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. What will heaven be like? It'll be beyond comprehension but we will dwell around the throne of the Lamb forever. And the throne of the Lamb is my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my brother. He's my King. What a glorious end. Let us pray. Father, this should have huge implications for our life with you. We tend to want to make it all about us, how we're doing, whether or not we're living up, whether or not we've been faithful. And those are not bad things to think about, but that's not what it's all about. What it's all about is Jesus and him only. And so I pray that we turn our eyes upon Jesus, look fully into his loving face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us learn to live with confidence and genuine hope because you're a God who does what he says he's going to do every single time. And we trust that you will work out your will as we face these days. Let this be the overarching story that shapes our life every day. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who are grateful that we have been redeemed, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.